This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. I will never forget the first time that I went inside a prison. I was 18, and I signed up as a volunteer to teach a writing class in a men's prison in Iowa. I wasn't sure what to expect at all. A couple of my friends were teachers in the prison already, and said that I should volunteer too. I was eager to get teaching experience, and there was a distinct lack of people asking 18-year-old undergrads to teach classes anywhere but in prison. So I jumped at the chance. I had no idea what I was getting into. I don't mean that in some sort of ominous, foreboding way about not knowing what I was getting into. I mean that in a clear statement of absolute ignorance. I grew up white and middle class. No one I was close to had ever been incarcerated. Until my friends asked me to volunteer, I had never really thought about prison at all. I didn't even know what a prison even looked like in real life. When you see prisons in films, they're often scary metal bars and gothic vibes. There's people yelling from inside cells and everything is really dark. Alcatraz, The Rock. No one has ever escaped from this prison. I guess as a teenager, I was imagining that prisons in real life fell somewhere between the 1962 film Escape from Alcatraz and that scene in Disney's Robin Hood when all the animals are locked up by the sheriff. If we were so down, we'd up and leave. This ignorance came from my privilege. I'd never been forced to see the inside of a jail or a prison or grapple with having a family member incarcerated. That's an opposite reality for many Americans, though I didn't know it at the time. And the fact that I had never seen prisons or really thought about them had a lot to do with my race and class. While 12% of white women have a family member in prison, 44% of African-American women do. But it's no surprise that my only reference points for prisons came from hokey old films. Our society is designed in many ways to keep prisons out of sight and out of mind, for people like me. To get into the prison, I first had to go through a background check and take an eight-hour training. Most of the training was about what I couldn't wear. No blue jeans, no skirts above the knee, no shirts that anyone anywhere might consider having cleavage. So on my first day of volunteering, I donned my finest khakis and cardigan and drove 30 minutes to the prison. This is the first thing that I learned about prisons. They are usually in the middle of nowhere. That's by design. The one that I taught at was on a lonely road in the middle of some soybean fields. This is intentional. Our society doesn't want to think about prisons. There is a whole very expensive industry that's built up around one goal, making prisons and jails and the 2.2 million people who live inside them invisible. This is quite the vanishing act. Pulling it off requires the help of everyone in the country. For us to not see prisons and to not see the gigantic ripple effects that mass incarceration has on our society, we have to willfully look away. So seeing a prison in person for the first time was kind of a shocker for me. I was surprised that instead of looking like some kind of weird dungeon, the inside of the prison waiting room looked pretty much like the DMV. Same plastic chairs, same linoleum floor, same bored and annoyed worker behind the desk wielding a clipboard. They checked my ID, crossed my name off a list, and turned a hard eye toward my outfit. Khakis, cardigan, check, and check, I passed. They marked my hand with a pen, the kind of ink that's invisible, but shows up under black light. Then a guard escorted me through a metal detector, two locked doors, across a concrete courtyard, and through two more locked doors, and then into the library. The library looked a lot like one that a high school would have. Fluorescent lights, paperback books, and lots of posters covered in rules. Except that unlike in high school, there was a group of adult men sitting around a table, waiting for me, their teacher. I wound up teaching in that prison for three years, and it changed my life. When I went home after that first class, I remember getting back to my dorm room, and the weight of that reality just settling in on me. What I was thinking about was that the prison is always there. Whether I was thinking about it or not, it's always there. And that is just one prison. There was this whole society existing in the United States that I hadn't even thought about before. There are more prisons and jails in the United States than colleges. 
that table of 10 guys was just 10 guys out of millions of people. The United States has the largest prison population in the world. And even if my stupid writing class did some good, which, let's face it, was unlikely as I had forgotten to even bring pencils on that first day of class, it felt like the tiniest, teeny, tiny, minuscule eyedropper in an ocean-sized bucket that I hadn't even realized was there the day before. What I was facing then is something that I've thought about a lot. It's something that mass incarceration is designed to make us ignore, that people in prison are people all 2.2 million of them. As much as tough-on-crime politicians and right-wing media pundits try to dehumanize them as just purely criminals, not worth thinking about, they're people. And putting that many people in prison affects so much of our society. It's so big that it's hard to see. It feels like prisons are a massive, invisible part of our economy, our politics, and our culture. And they remained largely invisible because, for decades, incarcerated people have been absent from our pop culture, except for occasional adventure films about prison breaks or as neatly packaged and salacious stories and crime dramas like Law & Order. We rely on our pop culture to tell us about places we might never actually go or people we might never meet. It's very easy to be a white, middle-class American and never actually see a prison which means that a whole big part of our society will likely not be on your radar. The people who are in prison might never seem real to you. What if instead of going through the whole rigmarole of getting to a prison in person, of going through an eight-hour training and passing through a metal detector and locked doors, what if instead of that, we heard realistic stories about people in prison in our films and on TV? What if we saw what their lives are like, like we see what life is like for ER doctors and lawyers and marginally employed comedians. It would make prison more real and harder to ignore. Now, more than ever, Americans are starting to see prisons. Activists have been working for years to make prisons and the problems they create more visible, to push back against that vanishing act. Now we're seeing more stories about prisons in our pop culture, most notably in the show Orange is the New Black. Look at you, Blondie. What'd you do? Aren't you not supposed to ask that question? I read that you're not supposed to ask that. You read that? Well, you studied for prison? And we're seeing more about prisons in the streets. Last Friday, September 9th, activists in cities all over the country led public protests against mass incarceration. Take control of your block, no prisons, no cops! Our producer Alex Ward talked to some protesters at the march in downtown Portland. I think that um, mass incarceration needs to be completely eradicated. I don't know that reform is actually possible. That's a woman who gave her name as Thorn. The protesters were taken to the streets on September 9th at the same time that people in prison went on a coordinated labor strike. So we're supporting the prisoners today who are on labor strike. It's very important to support people. People in 40 prisons in 24 states participated in that work stoppage. But because they're in prison, most media outlets didn't cover it. It's hard to get reporters into prison. And it's hard to get photos and stories out of prison. And even if you do, it can be hard to sell a story that goes against the narrative many Americans have in their heads that people in prison are not worth hearing from. So that means prison protests, even big ones, are often not that visible on the outside. Stories and snippets trickle out, but they're often kept behind prison walls. So the point of the protests in the city streets was to do exactly the opposite of that, to make the invisible visible to make people who work downtown have to notice and think, even for a minute, about the millions of people who are locked up, intentionally, out of sight, out of mind. On today's episode, we have two stories from this big, invisible world. We're going to talk about what happens when prisons remain unseen and the role pop culture can play in bringing them to light. Stay tuned.
To me, it feels like only recently that people are starting to see prisons as a mainstream feminist issue. If you've only learned about prisons from, I don't know, say, the Hamburglar, I understand where you're coming from. You might see people in prison as all violent criminals and think that taking them out of society makes our country safer and stronger as a whole. But a lot of work has been done in the last 20 years to show how our justice system is not equal and is not making our country safer and stronger. If you care about making the world a more equitable place for people of color, for queer and trans people, for people with disabilities, then you've got to care about prisons. As Michelle Alexander spelled out in her landmark 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, mass incarceration is a stunningly comprehensive and well-disguised system of racialized social control. Systemic biases in our economy, our police forces, and our legal system work hand-in-hand to create our current dystopian reality where African Americans are incarcerated at about six times the rate of white people. Well, you can hear all the numbers you want, and I can certainly throw them at you, but they might just wash over you. Instead, what's really powerful is hearing an actual person's story. Hi, I'm Andrea James. I'm the founder and executive director of Families for Justice as Healing and also a founding member of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Andrea James's group, Families for Justice as Healing, focuses on raising public awareness about the impact mass incarceration has on women and kids. Andrea knows all about this impact. She's from Roxbury, a historically African-American neighborhood in Boston. And as a kid, she saw a lot of people around her get arrested as part of the war on drugs and get sent to prison. When she grew up, she started working as an attorney. She got married, had kids, and built a career as a criminal defense lawyer and real estate lawyer. That all changed in 2010. Uh, I was sent to prison um, in a matter relating to my real estate conveyance practice, and I was sentenced to a federal prison sentence for for, uh, 24 months uh, for wire fraud. And I just was stunned. I was stunned and heartbroken. You know, I had just, at 45, I went to prison. Andrea was sent to Danbury Women's Prison in Connecticut. You might have heard of it. Danbury is now famous as the setting for the show Orange is the New Black. Piper Kerman, the real woman who wrote the memoir about her time in prison that became the basis for that show, served 13 months in Danbury in 2004, a few years before Andrea was sent there. We'll talk more in a minute about what real women in Danbury think of the show, but for now, let's focus on Andrea's story. The hardest part about being sent to prison for Andrea was thinking about her kids. She had a 12-year-old daughter and a newborn baby. She had given birth just five months before her conviction. She was still breastfeeding her baby when she went to prison. People think when you send a woman to prison that everything gets better for everybody, and it's not true. Everything goes downhill. And regardless of, of what you think about that woman prior to her being incarcerated for whatever you think she should be in prison for, she shouldn't be in prison for it most times. And and two, her children suffer even more uh, once she is away. Arriving at the prison was really scary and overwhelming. Andrea was put into a unit that mixed new arrivals in with women who had been in the prison for decades. Remember, Andrea was a criminal defense attorney. She knew the facts and figures about how prison worked. But being there in the middle of it was completely different. All kinds of things were going on in that space all day and night long. You know, women were detoxing, people were sick, uh, people were angry, they were bounced back because they had gotten in trouble and they didn't have their housing anymore. Uh, there were all kinds of things. There were new people like me who were scared to death and didn't know what was going on and we would try to get the lay of the land and everything sounded like a fight was breaking out, but once you get used to the the environment of the prison, you realize it's not what's happening. It's just that's the sounds of the prison. We can be criminal justice professionals all day long and still never have a clue of what it's really like. And so what struck me the most, what got me off of my bunk, because I was really, I think I was so depressed. Um, the, my, you know, giving birth, you know, I was 45. I had just given birth. I was still leaking. You know, my, my son hadn't completely... Uh, weaned from breastfeeding. I mean, there was all these horrific things emotionally for me to go through. I just was a a mess. Andrea and the women around her were eager to talk to their families on the outside. 
But that presented a problem. Here was the phone situation in Danbury's unit. The unit had four phones and 200 women. Even if you waited in line to make a call, you still had to be able to afford it. Each call cost anywhere from $3.50 to $5 and was capped at 15 minutes. That might not sound like too much of an expense, but it's huge for one phone call, especially given what the women were paid at their jobs in the prison. Incarcerated people are paid as low as 12 cents an hour, which adds up to about $8 a month. So think about that in phone calls. That's about two phone calls. If you can't get money from someone on the outside to help cover the cost, that 12 cents doesn't go very far at all. To mother from a payphone from inside of a prison was just the most heartbreaking thing that I had ever witnessed, even for myself. And I had so much more privilege and access than most of the women in that prison. But even for me, it was incredibly painful. There were often times that my my daughter wouldn't be finished telling me something or, you know, I needed to have a discussion with, and she was just going into adolescence when I left. And, you know, it was a difficult, difficult time for her. But when the phone cuts off, the phone cuts off. And if you're done. Price gouging for prison phone calls is not limited to the prison where Andrea spent time. It's a national problem. The FCC found that some private companies were charging up to $14 a minute for prison phone calls. Loopholes allowed inmate calling service providers to tack on extra fees, driving already expensive rates even higher. In August 2016, after years of pressure from reformers, the FCC finally laid down some new rules saying that companies couldn't charge more than 21 cents a minute for federal prison phone calls to other states. So for Andrea, one 15-minute phone call home from Connecticut to Massachusetts across state lines would now cost $3.15. That's an improvement, sure, but still about 40% of your monthly wages if you make 12 cents an hour. Not only were they just thousands and thousands of miles from their children, they had not seen, and many of them had talked very little to their children five, six, seven years later. And the last time they laid their eyes on their children, they were looking out the back of a police or law enforcement vehicle during their arrest. This prison phone situation is just one example of the concrete realities of our prison system that weren't visible to Andrea as a person on the outside, even as somebody who worked in criminal justice, who had a lot more contact with incarceration than most of us do. The reality of prison was still invisible to her. Those first few weeks were brutal. She struggled with depression, with missing her children all the time. Lying in her bunk one day, she noticed that her cellmate had some photos of her family. The photos were obviously well-loved. You weren't allowed to put pictures up on the wall, but her cellmate kept hers in a small locker. She opened up her door of her locker, and I saw pictures of her. I could tell that were frayed and yellow, and she was holding these little boys in her arms. And then I looked and saw this continuum of these pictures, and the boys got older, and then the very more recent pictures is the same woman in a visiting, in the visiting room, in her, you know, her her prison, federal prison uh, clothing, and she was holding these babies again. And I said, my gosh, I said, who are, who, are these, who are these people? She said, well, those are my sons when I first came in here. And I said, well, who are these babies? She said, oh, those are my grandbabies. And I, it, I couldn't find the words. As a lawyer, Andrea knew about the lengths of sentences. She knew the facts about mandatory minimums that required judges to send people to prison for seven years, a decade, or sometimes life for drug crimes. But what being sentenced to 10 to 30 meant in human cost hadn't really hit her until she realized that this woman's little kids had grown up, lived their whole lives, and had their own kids, all while she was behind bars. Andrea talked about this a few days later with a woman named Joyce, who'd been incarcerated for a long time. They were eating in the prison cafeteria, and Andrea asked how to cope with missing her kids so much. And I said, my God, Joyce, how do you get through every day with being separated from your child? How did you last so up till five years now doing this? She said, you have to forget about your children. And it struck me as such cruelty. You know, um, we're supposed to have a constitution that precludes cruel and unusual punishment. 
but we're separating mothers from their children. And the only way that they can, you know, get through that sentence is to forget about their children. And that's exactly what we all did to, for, the, for the most part. We got up every day and did what we were told to do in that prison, and thinking of our children wasn't, we didn't do it. We didn't allow ourselves to do it because it would break a woman down. And on any given day, maybe it's in the chow home, maybe it's out in one of the, you know, the, the grounds crew, you know, doing cleaning somewhere, or a woman is mopping the bathroom floors, and she falls out in complete grief. And she's inconsolable, and we all know what it was. She just is overwhelmed. She may have been there a year. She could have been there 10 years. But every now and then it hits you as a woman and as a mother that you're away from your children. Those feelings are what made Andrea know that when she got out after 24 months, she couldn't go back to her regular life. She had to work to try to change the system. So that's, that's what really got me to see the other side of it, see the truth of the system, because people don't, they have no idea, the general public, what really goes on. And then you add all the other layers to it, the bad health care, the horrible conditions, living conditions, the sexual assaults, the dehumanizing treatments. Um, you know, you add all those layers to it, and it's just an incredibly uh, horrible, broken, dehumanizing, cruel, unjust system. On a hot summer day, Andrea and five other women sat around a table in the prison and talked it over. You know, we said, we're going to use our voices. We're going to, one, first, create a more accurate portrait of who we are, who are incarcerated women, and then go and raise public awareness about, from our perspective, what are the policies that need to change. Think about how radical the name of that group is, Families for Justice as Healing. For Andrea, justice as healing means pushing for laws that will make society safer and healthier by sending fewer people to prison. And whenever you take the women and incarcerate them, particularly women who are mothers, for the most part, you're creating further harm because incarceration is the most, the most dehumanizing experience on the planet. And they've gained some attention. In 2015, Andrea's group won a prestigious Soros Foundation grant to fund her grassroots work. Right now, Families for Justice as Healing is advocating for a law in Massachusetts that would change how bail works. Poor people are the ones who can't afford to post bail, so they're the ones who wind up spending days, weeks, or months in jail awaiting their trials. 25% of the people who are incarcerated in the state are just awaiting trial. They haven't been found guilty or innocent yet at all. They just can't afford the bail to get out. Another law that Andrea's group is pushing for calls for community-based alternatives to prison for people who are the primary caretakers of their children. If it passes, judges would have to consider the human cost of separating families and putting those kids in the foster care system and could send more people to residential treatment facilities or put them on house arrest instead of sending them to prison if they have kids to take care of. So we are never going to get to any real answers that are really shaping good policy that makes our communities healthy and our families healthy and our children healthy and that we, you know, stop using prison as a default by if we continue to just incarcerate people. The group Families for Justice as Healing also works on getting the stories of incarcerated women into pop culture. They help women who are in prison write and publish their stories. They think it's really important to share those realities as media to help humanize people who are incarcerated and make this situation visible to the mainstream. Andrea wrote a book herself about her experience in Danbury. It's called Upper Bunkies Unite. Of course, the biggest piece of pop culture to come out of Danbury is Orange is the New Black. Andrea says that the women she works with in the prison have mixed feelings about the Netflix show. They definitely support Piper Kerman's original memoir and the work that she's done for prison reform after its publication. But Andrea says that among the women she talks to who are in prison, they're worried the show is turning their cruel realities into comedy. Well, look, it's like a double-edged sword for us, right? Because we'll never think that, you know, you get to a point where it's all about entertainment and they want to keep their audience. Andrea says the entertainment value of the show and the money Netflix is certainly making off of it makes her uncomfortable. 
And of course, it was easier to get the show made at all because it's about a white woman, while most of the women in prison are women of color. But Orange is the New Black is also certainly doing what so much of our media fails to do, putting prison issues on the mainstream radar in a colossal way. It's made prisons visible to people who would otherwise probably not think about prisons. For women, particularly white women, college-age students and people who are going to be the social workers and the grad students of the future who still control the agencies and the nonprofits that are making decisions for us still, those women that are the majority of the viewers of a show like Orange is the New Black, it's raising awareness in the issue. So that's a good thing. You know, anytime we get to raise awareness, we have to do a better job at not allowing a show like Orange is the New Black to mute our voices, the real women who have had the real experience. What Andrea's worried is that people will sit back, watch the show, and sure, feel bad, but not work to change the system in any way. It's not enough for you to say, oh my God, that's terrible, we have to do something about it. Because if you're not doing something about it, we're, those of us who are in the majority of the people who are of the population who are incarcerated don't make up the majority in this country. So we need other people. We need white people, to, who, and, and many white people who consider themselves to be liberal and progressive, to really start to make demands to bring an end to mass incarceration in this country. And if you're not, but you get it, but you're not doing anything about it, you're being complicit. And when you're complicit, you're just as guilty as the people who are maliciously continuing a system like we have. That's Andrea James of Families for Justice's Healing. Her book is called Upper Bunkies Unite. Just as a quick shout out, Andrea wants everyone to know about a campaign called Can Do Clemency, a group that's pushing for President Obama to grant clemency to people serving time for federal nonviolent drug crime offenses. They're hoping Obama will undo some of the damage of the war on drugs by granting clemency to people before he leaves office. They have just a few months left and they have petitions you can sign. Look them up at CanDoClemency.com. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about how prisons are designed to be invisible. This next story shines a light on one part of that system, how a third of people in prison have at least one disability, and how that's not part of the story most people hear about prisons. Our media and lawmakers don't often link these two issues, incarceration and disabilities, Cheryl Green shares this next story. Cheryl understands the power of pop culture in shaping public perception of marginalized people. She's a filmmaker. She just shot a documentary about artists who have traumatic brain injuries. She's also, by the way, the person who transcribes each episode of this podcast, champion transcriptionist. Just a warning, this story has discussion of some pretty harsh realities. Cheryl will be talking about racist and ableist trauma, profiling, and a history of abuse. If you don't think you want to hear about that right now, just come back to this another time. Before the Declaration of Independence was even signed, the fledgling United States of America already had mental institutions, taking people considered insane out of their homes and tucking them into specialized hospitals. Sometimes they got treatment, sometimes they were shackled, starved, and abused. People with psychiatric disabilities were jailed more often than placed in hospitals in the early days. In the 1830s, a Boston schoolteacher named Dorothea Dix took a job teaching people in prison in Massachusetts. While she didn't go into the job as an activist, what she saw in the prison appalled her. 
she started to report on how living conditions were brutal and the people in prison, many with psychiatric disabilities, were abused and starved by their jailers. She started a movement that expanded the reach of our psychiatric hospitals, but it was no miracle fix. While a lot has changed in the last 180 years, patterns of abuse in long-term care facilities and jails repeat endlessly to this day. Right now, in the United States, there are more people with psychiatric disabilities in jail or prison than there are in psych hospitals, and incarcerated populations represent people with a huge array of physical, cognitive, and sensory impairments and deaf people. If she were around today, Dorothea Dix would be outraged at how it's once again easier to wind up behind bars than in a specialized hospital. Our current incarceration rates has something to do with our response to the abuse of institutions. In 1955, President John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act, a law intended to end the isolation and segregation of disabled people in archaic institutions by pushing funding out of institutions and into home and community-based care. Almost every American family at some stage will experience or has experienced a case of mental affliction. And we have to offer something more than crowded custodial care in our state institutions. Our task is to prevent these conditions. Our next is to treat them more effectively and sympathetically in the patient's own community. I hope the Congress will act on this bill. But even as the nation shut down institutions, funding for community care has still not reached levels needed to keep most people with complex care needs in their homes. We shuttered the warehouses and gave people nowhere to go. And as a culture, we never address the ableist biases that led us to want to lock up disabled people in the first place. The politics of who gets assigned a label of disability ties into racism, homophobia, and sexism. Until the 1970s, homosexuality was considered a mental illness and for many years a crime. Then during lunch, Ralph showed him some pornographic pictures. Jimmy knew he shouldn't be interested, but well, he was curious. What Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who demands an intimate relationship with members of their own sex. Many people who were LGBT were incarcerated in prisons and psych wards. Likewise, 19th century doctors had great confidence that the only reason an enslaved African or African-American might run away was because they must be suffering an alleged mental illness that they called drapetomania. And we all know the fabulous diagnosis of hysteria, something that can only happen to someone with a uterus. In early 20th century thinking, someone's uterus supposedly detached from its spot in the abdomen navigated itself to the brain and destroyed the person's ability to think rationally. Today, these biases still all work tragically in tandem. Estimates now find that between one-half and one-third of people killed by police have a disability. For me, these aren't just distant statistics. They're a constant danger in my own community of people with disabilities from traumatic brain injury. I've seen friends with traumatic brain injuries be incarcerated instead of getting rehab when they've spiraled into houselessness, driving under the influence, attempting suicide, and abusing drugs, all common for a lot of people with TBI. Disability and deafness are often criminalized when people don't walk, talk, or respond to police in the way the officers expect them to. When I think specifically about why people who acquire their disability as adults like I did are more likely to wind up in jail than non-disabled people, I think back to the time I got kicked off an airplane in 2013. This was back when I used to get completely devastated when anyone changed my plans, something the brain injury really brought out in me. I had requested pre-boarding and then to have someone hoist my bag into the overhead bin for me, both of which are my rights under the law. They refused, and I imploded. I didn't want to cause a fuss, so I withdrew into a little ball. As my rage and frustration built, I crushed my glasses in my fist, obliterating them, and I refused to speak for fear that I'd only be able to scream. I was trying to make myself silent and invisible. 
But that was too much for the flight crew. They demanded I leave the plane, saying I was, quote, a safety hazard, and that the pilot refused to fly with someone who refused to communicate. When I made it back to the waiting area, I was in a sobbing rage. I threw my bags down and started cussing at the top of my lungs. Luckily, in cases of disability-related incidents, airlines are required by law to call in a specially trained complaints resolution official. The glasses I'd crushed had prism lenses to point my eyes in the same direction. Without them, the people, carts, and rolling bags were visually disorienting, and I kept getting lost trying to walk in a straight line. So the official held my hand as we walked to keep me from running into anyone. He got me a new ticket on the next flight. Then he led me to the employee lounge and let me wait there. When I got on my flight five hours later, I was too exhausted to care about my own frustrations. That made it easier to stay calm and follow orders and sit still. Thinking back to this incident, I know even though it wasn't a good situation, it could have turned out so much worse. Airports aren't exempt from police and TSA brutality. What kept it from escalating to that? I honestly believe it had a lot to do with the fact that I'm a small, cisgender, white woman. It's my privilege that kept me from being incarcerated. A lot of disabled people don't wind up as lucky as I was that day. The incarcerated population is three to four times more likely to report having a disability than non-incarcerated people. Storytellers from the AVID Prison Project report barriers they face that are pretty universal, such as having their wheelchairs taken away, being refused medical attention or prescriptions, and being punished and isolated instead of given accommodations, many of which are inexpensive and straightforward. Last year, I listened to activists and artists on a panel about race, disability, art, and incarceration held in Seattle. Dorian Taylor talked about their experiences being abused as a child and how their responses to abuse was seen as just acting out. Well, first of all, I just um, I want to start out by saying that um, I feel really honored to be here because um, statistically, I should not be here right now. That is something that I think is important to start off this conversation with, is that statistically, these systems are designed to keep people like myself away from these environments, is to keep me institutionalized. One thing that is different when people mention the school to prison pipelines and when they, they mention um, different forms of incarceration is that when you grow up like I did, you were never told that you could do anything besides end up in an institution. My incarceration started with mental institutions at nine years old. As a black Native American child labeled mentally ill instead of the victim of abuse, they got no counseling and care. Instead, they got incarceration in a mental institution and chemical incarceration through psychiatric drugs, leading to a cycle of isolation and further abuse. I used to go to a brain injury support group. Not long after my airport incident, a police chief came to our meeting to talk about police encounters. She told us about how we should wear medical alert bracelets listing our disabilities so officers can ideally view us as disabled, not non-compliant. I ordered one online that same day. I was scared I might lash out in public again. I was afraid of a cop touching me. I was afraid of a cop punishing me for imploding and not responding, even though for me, it would be self-preservation. The bracelet said to speak slowly, quietly, and calmly. It said to write things down. I can't remember what else is said because I lost it. As many disability rights and justice activists state, this is not a matter of individual people's personal shortcomings, flaws, or failures. Disability and deafness are not, quote, what's wrong with you. Being disabled or deaf means existing in and creatively adapting to an inaccessible world while honoring and celebrating all aspects of your identity. Nowadays, I have much more self-control and I can communicate better under stress. With these added privileges, I don't have fear around my own situation anymore because I pass as non-disabled. Thanks are due to disability justice activists, like those using the hashtag 
Dangerously Disabled on Twitter to share firsthand experiences around policing and incarcerating disabled and deaf people. Usually, in our media and pop culture, disability is considered a downer of a subject. Disability stories are considered niche, but they're not niche. Disabled people exist in every culture and community in the U.S. The imperative that we be hidden away in locked buildings is based on a culture's values, not a universal inevitability. It's up to us to keep up the fight for basic rights, such as living in the community, And we can't stop there, because disability rights are only part of one step in the call for disability justice. After hearing Cheryl's essay, I wanted to talk to her more about the role pop culture can play in changing the way our society treats people with traumatic brain injuries. So I gave her a call. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking time to talk. Yeah. Hey, so I wanted to talk to you about the role that pop culture plays specifically in representing disabilities and this whole issue around uh, people with disabilities being more likely to be incarcerated, Um, because I think it's something that's not on a lot of people's radars. Mm. And so I was wondering, so you have traumatic brain injury yourself. Can you talk to me about some ways you've seen traumatic brain injury be represented in films and on TV? Are there any characters who come to mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, really only two come to mind. And that might be because I have such a terrible memory. But um, I think I I haven't actually seen TBI a lot in fiction. But, um, you know, uh, it is usually the butt of a joke, or it's just some little plot device to to um, excuse or explain somebody's odd behavior. You know, the first one that comes to mind is Fifty First Dates. Have you seen that? Yeah. So in that, somebody gets a head injury, right? And then keeps forget- and gets constant amnesia? Yeah, yeah. So that is my favorite film to hate. And you've basically got um, most of the plot. That's a pretty thin, boring plot. Um, but that's it. <laughs> And the thing is, it is so racist and transphobic and misogynistic. And I mean, it is just all around a really bad film. But the deal is, is that I see brain injury support organizations. Um, They're always giving out these handouts to families who have a new TBI survivor here. Check out, you know, media. Check out characterizations of TBI. What can you expect with your new person? And Fifty First States is on the top of the list. And it's so, so awful. But I mean, what else can they recommend? There's hardly anything out there. But it's just, it's unrealistic, it's reductionist. And really, the TBI puts her in a position where she is just completely manipulated and abused. And that's where the humor lies. So it's horrid. The The one good film that I can balance it out with is The Lookout. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't even heard of that. Okay, I recommend that. Yeah, who has heard of it? Because it's a movie about a guy with a TBI. But it is so good. I I think I watched it three times in one weekend when I rented it. But that's also partly because I get obsessive. But it was good. But the thing is, it's a drama about a guy who also gets totally coerced and manipulated, but into criminal activity, specifically because he's vulnerable. Now, what new family wants to watch that? Here you go. Your loved one is just coming out of a coma. Watch this. So nobody would want to watch that, but it's so realistic. And to me, it's so valuable because because it isn't just about making fun of the TBI survivor or just taking advantage. You really see um, how ableist people are and how people can take some strange pleasure in really hurting people who are vulnerable. What felt different to you about the representation of Um, the person with traumatic brain injury in the lookout versus something that you hate, like 51st States. What was different? The subtleties. uh, First of all, the impairments that he represented were completely realistic and extremely, extremely common. Like he had um, memory difficulties and he had trouble generating, you know, coming up with ideas and coming up with complete sentences. And he had All the cupboards were labeled in his house, you know, where the spoons are and where the, well, who puts spoons in, I guess I put spoons in a cupboard, but, you know, cups and plates, they were labeled to help him be oriented. And his sense of humor was affected, you know, when people used figurative language, those things are so realistic. And 
again, it was like the the social environment, the context that he was in, where people were manipulating him to get something they wanted because they saw they saw he was vulnerable, um, as opposed to manipulating the character just to make the audience laugh. That was a big difference that I saw. And so you're a filmmaker yourself, and some of your work focuses on people with traumatic brain injuries. Um, what notes do you try to hit when you talk about traumatic brain injuries in the films that you make, which are mostly documentaries? So um, there's a couple things I try to hit. One is um, I absolutely reject and, re- well, reject. I refuse to show graphic images um, either of crashes or wrecks or of people in a coma with the neck brace and the tubes and the black eyes and all that. Um, there's a lot of that out there, and I find that very triggering and grotesque. And, you know, off, I mean, when you're in a coma, you really can't consent to anything Um, And so there's a lot of people who are very empowered by showing these pictures of when they were comatose and when they were severely injured. For me, I find it triggering and I find it um, such a, it sets people up to be freak show subjects. So I'm going to look at you in this coma and think about how you've got all these impairments and losses. And that's all I care about. That's your whole story. That's what ends up happening a lot. So what I try to do is I avoid and um, stay away from graphic descriptions of trauma and pain and graphic images of those things. And instead, I try to focus on the, the consequences like social isolation, stigma, ableism, poverty, um, all kinds of misunderstandings. Because to me, that's, that, there's much more potential for social change when we talk about how we're all responsible for caring for each other with or without TBI. Um, as opposed to most TBI media, which is about overcoming adversity and terrible wrecks and, you know, what's wrong with you and, ooh, just lots of details that are really um, divorced from someone's actual life context. Let's make the link between disabilities and incarceration and pop culture. Do you remember when you first started thinking about these issues being tied together? And what role do you think pop culture should play in putting this reality on our on our radar I first started really thinking about it when um, I I had a couple of predators early on when I had much more impairment than I have now and it took a lot of effort for people to convince me that I that I had predators that these people were preying on me and um, and I started paying attention to stories of my peers with brain injury and hearing the, the things that they were doing, the behaviors they had that were unacceptable in society, but they made perfect sense to me. I felt like, oh, I know why you would do that. I know why you're having that problem. I feel like I could have that problem. Um, if I didn't have as much support and privilege as I have, I would have a lot of those problems too. Um, then when I started filming my documentary on artists with TBI, I heard some very uncomfortable stories. Um, and I started thinking more about... Um, domestic violence and into intimate partner violence and how my guess is a hundred percent of survivors of domestic violence have had a hit to their head or a hundred hits to the head and and I was thinking about you know how that um, makes it harder for people to comply with programs like transitional housing services or homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, prisons or jails. The more TBI disability you have, the harder it is to follow instructions and be in these loud, crowded places with these rigid schedules. And I just really started thinking about how um, if you don't have the safe, secure home life that I have, where do people end up? That was Cheryl Green. In addition to being a writer, filmmaker, and activist, she also transcribes every episode of this podcast. Champion transcriptionist. Thanks, Cheryl. For people who have family or friends in prison, or have been incarcerated themselves, the effects of mass incarceration are clearly visible everywhere. They're visible in how 11 states spend more money on prisons than they do on higher education. They're visible in how 13% of black men can't vote in the United States because they have a felony record. The more you look, the more effects you see. It's frustrating because the data on this is clear. 
on how putting this many people in prison with a justice system that's as racially biased and ableist as ours is bad for society. But most people don't listen to data. They listen to stories. Human stories are what work their way into your heart and your mind. I can throw graphs at you all day, but it's the emotional real-life stories that you remember that change your mind. And those stories are largely missing from our pop culture. The way a culture changes is through storytelling, through changing the narrative that's told about an issue or a group. We need to bring the stories of people who see prison for what it is to be brought into the spotlight. Propaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. The music featured on today's show is by the artist Haley. That's H-A-L-E-Y. She's rad. Look her up. You know I love to hear from our listeners, so here is this week's listener note. Last week on Bitch Media's Facebook page, listener Deborah Vance Beaumont responded to the interview with fat positive yoga sensation Jessamine Stanley from our body positive exercise episode. She wrote... If you have a moment of body acceptance, there's always people who are going to tear people apart. Everyone is deserving of respect, regardless of your prejudice. Thanks for taking down the haters, Deborah. We always want to hear your thoughts on the show. Share your feelings on this podcast, on Bitches Facebook, Twitter, or on iTunes. In the meantime, I'll see you next week. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>